1 Corinthians chapter 5, 1 to 13. On page 808. Expelled the immoral brother. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and a kind that does not occur even among pagans. A man has his father's wife. And you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with the grief and have put out your fellowship to the man who did this? Even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. And I have already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. When you were assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, I am with you in spirit. And the power of the Lord Jesus is present. Hand this man over to Satan, so that this sin the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do not, don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of a dough? Get rid of the old yeast that you may be, that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival with, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with the bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. I have written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy or swindlers, or idol, idolaters. In this case, you would, have, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls you who calls you, who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an adulterer or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. With such a man, do not even eat. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. Uh, let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you for this uh, challenging passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and uh, we pray that uh, as we look at this that our thinking would be changed, our attitude would be changed, our behaviour would be changed uh, so that we would be more the people that you would have us be and we pray in Jesus' name, Amen. Uh, I want to share with you about a congregation that I was aware of, it's a fairly ordinary congregation in many ways, uh, average size kind of number. But uh, at one point there were a number of um, church members who were uh, uh, committing adultery with one another in that church, several couples who were committing adultery. And each of them were long-term uh, regular members of the congregation and these uh, affairs uh, were common knowledge amongst the uh, church. But no action was being taken. One of the leaders was approached about this and he said, well, we're just trying to love people um, through it. Uh, church life was just pretty much business as usual. And that's a true story. It arouses a few questions, doesn't it? Uh, the question such as, uh, uh, should anything have been done about that? Um, and if so, uh, what and why? And what are the consequences 
either way. We live in a society, in a culture, uh, which considers itself to be morally progressive. And uh, the rate of progress <coughs> over uh, recent times has been so fast that it's uh, hard to keep up with, isn't it, as to what's actually considered uh, moral or immoral these days. Uh, things which, uh, within our lifetimes, and indeed over, uh, only over the last half, half dozen years or so, uh, were once considered to be immoral, uh, now considered to be moral um, and acceptable and normal. And the new morality in our world uh, seeps into the church. But you know what's worse than that? I think what's worse than that is when uh, there is moral or immoral behaviour happening within the church, which even the society uh, doesn't accept, uh, which our culture considers to be abhorrent and does not tolerate it. And that's true, isn't it? Uh, recent events in the last few years have shown just how true that is and how true it has been, in fact, for quite some time. Uh, it was actually a, a case like that that uh, was happening in the church in Corinth that um, Paul uh, wrote to. Uh, sometimes I think that we don't realise just how much the gospel has affected the morality of Western civilization over a couple of thousand years. But when you look back to the pre-Christian era, uh, in pre-Christian Greece, for example, we can see that they had a very um, different view of relationships uh, to what people like you and I would have, uh, such that uh, one of the um, Greek well-known Greek orators, uh, was able to say this, and it was quite acceptable. He said, and I quote, mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure, concubines for the daily care of the body, but wives, uh, we keep them in order to bear for us legitimate children. And uh, that's such a low view of morality, uh, but even with that low view of morality, there was one thing which was not tolerated and that was that a man should have sex uh, with the same woman as his father. Uh, even if the, um, uh, the woman is not uh, the man's mother uh, or even if the father is deceased, uh, in ancient culture uh, it was wrong for a man to have sexual relationships with a woman uh, that he shared in one sense with his father. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, this was actually happening within the Corinthian church. Uh, sin which was not tolerated by the pagans was happening within the Christian congregation. And even worse than that, not only was the sin happening but it was actually being accepted, it was tolerated by the congregation. Uh, Paul's reaction, you can see it in verse 2, he says, and you are proud, and you are proud. You know, the Corinthian church thought that they were pretty switched on, didn't they? You know, very spiritual church, and uh, they loved the wisdom, uh, they were proud about that. 
And so maybe it's the case that what Paul is saying here is, yeah, really? Is that so? Well, how come this is going on inside your church? You're so proud. Well, it may even be that they're not, even, they're not only just tolerating this sin, but they're actually celebrating it. You know, we are a progressive church. I think it would be the thing which people would say these days, wouldn't they? A progressive church. How should they have felt? Not proud, but sad. Deeply grieved, deeply saddened that this was going on. And they should have already have done something about it. It should not have gotten to this point where news about this gets back to the Apostle Paul. Now, they should have done something about it already, but they've done nothing, and so now they must act. See what Paul says in verses 3 to 5. He says, Even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit, and I've already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. Uh, when you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Now this is pretty much a stark contrast, isn't it, to their complacency, their tolerance, even their celebration. Uh, Paul, uh, the church leadership in Corinth have done nothing, but Paul here acts decisively. Now, he's not with them. Remember, Paul is in Ephesus, over in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. They are in uh, Greece. Uh, he's, he's not with them, but he has heard enough. This is not a case where Paul says, well, I've heard one side of the story, I need to hear the other. No, the facts here are pretty clear. And therefore, Paul says, in the name of the Lord Jesus, that is by the authority that he has, because it was the resurrected Jesus who has sent him out, uh, he has authority. In the name of the Lord Jesus, uh, Paul has made his judgment. Now, Paul's detractors in Corinth had been uh, eroding, undermining his apostolic authority. Uh, but here we see that Paul is uh, not uh, phased by that, is he? Uh, he's, he is asserting his apostolic authority as someone sent by Jesus. Notice also that um, although Paul is physically distant, that shouldn't make a difference. They are to act as if he were present. And when they are gathered together as a church, uh, Jesus is with them in spirit. Uh, remember, where two or three are gathered in my name, says Jesus, there I am in their midst. And that's in the context of church discipline, by the way. So when they are gathered together as a church, Jesus is with them, Paul is with them in spirit. Uh, what are they to do? They are to hand this man over to Satan. Now, it does seem that because the whole church is, in a sense, complicit in this, then there's a certain corporate responsibility to be involved uh, in the disciplinary action. 
But what does it mean to hand the man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh? Well, I don't think it means to uh, hand him over so that Satan will attack him and kill him. I don't think that's how Paul is using the term uh, flesh. Uh, we need to think about what is, uh, what is the purpose uh, of this action and it'll help us to understand what the action actually is. Well, the purpose, Paul says, is to save him, doesn't it? Uh, to save his soul uh, from, uh, from judgment on the day of the Lord. See, by accepting his sin, what is the church implicitly saying to him? They're saying, you're okay. You're, you're fine with God. There's no problems here. It's all, no worries. Is that love? Is that love? It's saying peace, peace when there is no peace. It says you're okay, you're okay, you're okay when in fact the person is under the judgment of God for their lack of repentance. To hand him over to Satan is to put him outside of the church and, uh, and therefore into the sphere, the realm uh, in which Satan rules. Now, sexual immorality is always destructive and it uh, very often ends in tears. Uh, the prayer would be that by excluding this man from the church, that his actual state would become clear to him. Um, that his sinfulness, that is his flesh, it's the word that Paul uses, flesh meaning that which is about the person, which is contrary to, to what God wants, uh, that his sinfulness would be destroyed in the hope that he would be humbled and that he would turn back to God. Now, there's no guarantees here, is there? There's no guarantees. But if he becomes aware that his sin is not acceptable and even uh, experiences the bitter fruit of being given over to that sin, then he may come to the painful realisation that God's ways are better, that being included with God's people is better. And he may repent, be forgiven and be restored. That's the goal, isn't it? That's what we would hope for. That's what we would pray for. I had a phone call uh, one day from a local minister and he told me that uh, if a particular man or, or man and woman, and he gave me their names, um, if they should turn up in our church one Sunday soon, um, be aware of something. He said to me, they're, they're not married. They are committing adultery. They've both walked out on their spouses and they are under church discipline from the church that he was a minister of. I greatly appreciated that conversation because had they turned up in church here, we would not have welcomed them as if the other church was wrong and that... Uh, it's all good with us, and by the way, we love adding to the numbers of our church. Would that be good for them? Or would it be better to say, actually, 
the message here is the same, that you do need to repent, uh, cease your adultery, uh, restore your relationship with your spouse, and then go and talk to your church. It would be for the sake of their salvation that we would do that. Because salvation, God's forgiveness comes through repentance, through the, the blood of Jesus, but the response is repentance. And uh, high-handed sin uh, actually is, is an expression of lack of repentance, lack of living with Jesus as Lord. But church discipline is not only uh, for the best interests of the person who's involved, it's also for the good of the church. Now, um, I am not in the custom of cooking and I don't know anything about baking bread and I'm sure I'm going to get some corrections to what I'm about to say um, after the sermon. Uh, I've um, <clears throat> had some instructions on baking bread over morning tea after the first service, I can tell you this. But here goes. I understand that yeast uh, is a fungus. Um, that um, uh, you, uh, It's fermented, fermented uh, flour. Uh, put water in the flour, flour and it, it ferments and it comes alive, you know, because the bacteria uh, from the air and so on. And then when you, uh, you, you add that, yeast to the um, uh, to your bread mixture uh, that it spreads through the dough as you bake it and the bread it causes bread to what does it do it causes bread to rise doesn't it okay am i right so far i think that's true of sour bro sourdough bread i think there's some differences there um what i do know is that bread without yeast is called unleavened bread and that's uh, that's like Lebanese bread, isn't it? Um, have a look at verse... Why is this relevant? Well, verse 6. Uh, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? I'm going to come back to that in a moment as well. But let me say this. Uh, it's talking about the spread of yeast through the dough, isn't it? And Paul says that that's analogous to the church... You see, at one point, uh, immorality, a certain immorality may not be tolerated at all within the church. Uh, but then someone does it and it's not dealt with and it's, it's swept under the carpet. So that something which was considered to be immoral uh, now is, becomes something which is tolerated. And something which is then tolerated as other people see that, think that it's something that they can do as well, and so it moves from being immoral to being tolerated to then being accepted. It becomes accepted. And then that can move, so therefore it becomes normalised behaviour, which over time becomes the new morality. Uh, it becomes so normal that anyone who actually says, hang on a moment, this is wrong, that person is not tolerated. 
that person is the one who becomes excluded. And this is what Paul is saying here. Think about that church I mentioned early in the introduction. Do you think that all of those couples started committing adultery at the same time? Of course not. It was behaviour that had been tolerated, accepted and normalised. Now, uh, implementing church discipline is not easy. Uh, it, It feels horrible, actually. But we need to consider its purpose. And the Bible gives a, a number of reasons as to why church discipline is important. The Westminster Confession of Faith uh, is our church's uh, doctrinal statement and it kind of summarises the biblical teaching, I think rather well, in uh, chapter 30 of the Confession. And it says that the purpose, talks about the purpose of church discipline as being six uh, key things. Number one, uh, it is about reclaiming the offender. And that's got to be the goal always, hasn't it? to reclaim the person. But then there is uh, deterring others from doing the same. Uh, It talks about then thirdly purging out the yeast uh, from the dough. It talks about fourthly the honour of Christ. And fifthly uh, the profession of the gospel, our gospel witness to the community. And finally it's actually also about averting God's wrath on the church. For when we tolerate sin in the church and sin becomes the norm, uh, then we need, we're in a precarious situation as a church. Read uh, the letters to the churches in the book of Revelation in regards to that. And consider what damage is done to um, people uh, in terms of their... Uh, their godliness. Uh, Consider what damage is done to the honour of Christ. Consider what damage is done to the believability of our message when the morality of churches is no different to the morality in the world. Or even worse, the morality of the churches is abhorrent to the world. When it could have been dealt with not at the end point, but way back at the beginning, before the yeast started to spread. Now, what will excluding someone from fellowship look like? Well, let's take a look at verses 9 to 11, uh, which read, I've written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and swindlers, or idolaters, in that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I'm writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother or a sister, but is sexually immoral, or greedy, an idolater, or a slanderer, a drunkard, or a swindler. With such a person do not even eat. Now, uh, here we see that Paul has written a prior letter to the Corinthians. It's a letter which we don't have in our possession. It's not part of the, um, the body of New Testament um, documents uh, of Scripture. 
but in this letter, he apparently has instructed them not to associate with immoral people. Now, he may have been misunderstood on that, or he may have even been misrepresented. Uh, we can imagine those uh, arrogant people in the Corinthian church, uh, his detractors, perhaps using that instruction to ridicule Paul, uh, to discredit him. I mean, how, how seriously can you take Paul? You know, he tells us not to associate with anyone who's immoral. My goodness, we're living in Corinth. What does he expect? I'm going to pack up and go and move out in the desert or something rather like that. Don't be ridiculous. Don't, you don't need to listen to Paul. But that's not what he meant. And so here he clears that up. He's talking about someone who claims to be a brother or sister in Christ. This is within the church. But notice that it's not just sexually immoral people. Uh, it's anyone who is greedy, idolatrous, a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. And you think to yourself, well, who's left? You know, <clears throat> who's going to be left to be running these excommunication proceedings? <laughs> uh, well, no, because, I mean, we would think that because we are all subject to temptation. We all uh, fall to temptation. Uh, there will be times when uh, many of us here will slander someone but we don't that's not that's not really who we are it's not really what we want to be doing we might fall to that temptation in romans chapter 7 the things which we uh, we don't want to do we we do the things which we know we should do we don't do because we're still in this body of sin and we look forward to that day when we will be made perfect or for the person struggling with alcoholism the church uh, should be a place of healing, not a place of rejection. This is about, what Paul's talking about here is high-handed sin. It's the unrepentant person who has no desire to change. It's the person who wants to uh, persist in the sins for which Christ died for them. Paul's saying that we need to be in the world, but not of the world, not part of the world. So what is church discipline going to look like? Well, uh, you know, traditionally some churches have said that at the very least, if a person is involved in this high-handed, um, unrepentant sin, that you might uh, not serve them the Lord's Supper, and I think that's making a statement, but here it's talking about exclusion from the community, isn't it? It's like in the Old Testament in Israel, actually putting the person outside of the camp. What's that going to look like? Well, the person wouldn't be welcome to the gatherings, the church services, but you might have, it's hard not to associate with people when you're living together in a in a community, uh, in a town, and you'll connect with people and so on. I think it's got to do with not associating with them in such a way that it sends the message to them that you're condoning their sin. See, I remember a case where uh, there was someone who was under church discipline from the leadership um, because of unrepentant 
adultery and a member of the church decided that they were going to throw a dinner party to which they invited that person along uh, along with their new partner and then invited other members of the church, some couples and, and so on. Not everyone felt comfortable about that. But what's the message? Well, the leadership may not like your adultery, but you're okay with us. We'll fellowship with you. What does Paul say here? Do not even eat with such people for their good. You do not send out the signal that everything is still fine when it's not. The appropriate social interactions uh, would be those which enable us to call upon the person to repentance, not those which send out the signal of condoning their sin. Sounds a bit judgmental, doesn't it? Well, Paul actually says a few things about judgment here. What does he say about judging people? Take a look at verse 12. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Here he's addressing that issue of people saying that, you know, Paul reckons you've got to leave the world entirely. No, that's not my business to judge those outside the church. He says, are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside but expel the wicked man from among you. Now, the problem we have is when we as Christians do the exact opposite. Uh, When we uh, judge the non-Christians for their sin whilst we tolerate high-handed sin amongst our own fellowship. There's a word for that, isn't it? Hypocrite. It's hypocrisy. Now, the key to all of this is about yeast. Let's go back to the yeast issue, shall we? You see, uh, because yeast spreads through dough, uh, when, you, um, uh, when you bake the, when you, when you create the yeast, the, put the flour and the water and it sort of ferments and so on, you don't put all of it into, your, into your, uh, your, your dough for your bread. You hold some of it back, don't you? And then you keep on feeding that so it keeps on fermenting. So you've got dough that you can keep, uh, you've got yeast that you can keep on using for uh, generations of um, baking bread. You keep that yeast alive. But what happens if the yeast gets contaminated? or goes off. Well, you throw it out, don't you? And in our society, you just go down to the shop and you buy some more yeast, (laughs) or whatever you do. But you can't keep on using it on future batches of dough. Now, when God rescued Israel from Egypt, they celebrated a feast, didn't they? They celebrated the Passover. Uh, where, they, uh, where they, uh, they, they slaughtered a lamb uh, in order to remember that the reason why they were uh, saved from, Israel, from Egypt uh, was because they had slaughtered a lamb and they had 
smeared their doorposts of their houses with the blood of the lamb so that when the spirit of god um, went through egypt the spirit of judgment would pass over those houses which were smeared uh, with the blood of the lamb and that's the passover uh, in exodus chapter 12 verse 17 they were also to celebrate the festival of unleavened bread bread without yeast for seven days they would eat bread without yeast like lebanese bread why would they do that it was about a fresh start without the old yeast the old yeast of slavery that was now over their life as slaves in egypt was gone their new lives as god's holy people had now begun and that's actually about us look at verse 7 get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast as you really are for christ our passover lamb has been sacrificed therefore let us keep the festival not with the old yeast the yeast of malice and wickedness but with bread without yeast the bread of sincerity and truth why did christ die to pay for our sins so that god's judgment would pass over us that we would now uh, have a new life that we would be now god's new people holy uh, different from the world and a light to the world that we would be a people who are so infused with god's grace and his love and his character that for someone to be asked to leave our church uh, would in fact be for them a cause for real sadness for real sorrow for real grief some time ago uh, some leaders in a church in sydney challenged one of the uh, men in their congregation because of repeated uh, sexual inappropriate sexual behavior towards the women uh, in the congregation and they challenged him numerous times and each time he was unrepentant so eventually they had to enact uh, 1 corinthians 5 and ask him to leave the church for his own good and for the good of the church uh, he then took the church leaders to uh, to court and sued them for uh, defamation of character i always find that interesting actually because the person's concerned that people are going to think poorly of them so they take it to court and it's splashed all over the newspapers what they've alleged to have done <laughs> a bit of pride in there perhaps but that was costly for the leaders of that church uh, in terms of what that involved for them in terms of the resources and emotions and so on the church i mentioned at the beginning of the sermon they swept sexual sin under the carpet but here's a church 
uh, which actually cares about the man's salvation, uh, which cares about the holiness of God and which cares about the well-being of their people, especially their women. Um, which church would you rather belong to? Uh, which church brings honour and glory to God? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this um, challenging passage. Uh, we pray that we would be people who have such a high view of your holiness and our identity as your new people uh, that we uh, would be uh, not tolerant of high-handed sin uh, in our midst. Father, that um, <clears throat> we would have uh, backbone to deal with such things uh, in a loving and gracious way, but in a clear manner. And Father, that we would also be uh, that kind of church which so reflects your character that um, exclusion from us would be something which would be something which would cause someone to rethink their situation and to grieve and to uh, seek your forgiveness and to repent. Uh, help us to be that kind of church, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.